Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Adam Hawkins. In each episode, I present a small batch of the theory and practices behind building a high-velocity software organization. Topics include DevOps, Lean, software architecture, continuous delivery, and conversations with industry leaders. Now, let's begin today's episode. Welcome to 2021, everyone. Let's start off with a small update on the show. I got some amazing episodes in the pipeline for you. I've recorded an episode with Matthew Skelton. Matthew is the author of the Team Topologies book. It's a book I've covered numerous times on the podcast. So I'm looking forward to sharing my conversation with him, with all of you. There's also my first ever combo interview with Jeffrey Frederick and Douglas Squirrel. They're the co-authors of the book Agile Conversations. It's a really interesting book about the human challenges of building organizations. And if you've listened to this podcast or maybe you heard me speak to some people, you'll hear me say that I don't think that the tech is a problem in the systems. It's usually the humans which are the problem. So their book speaks to how to work on the human side of building software organizations. It's a really fun book, and I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with all of you, too. And I've also recorded a conversation with Dr. Stephen Spear. He's the author of the book, The High Velocity Edge. This is a really great book that I wish I would have read earlier. You know, it's mentioned a bunch in the DevOps handbook as the inspiration for the third way of DevOps. I really like this book so much that I put together a solo episode on it. I just didn't think it would do justice to throw you into a conversation between me and Dr. Spear without some context about the book and the ideas. So I will release this solo episode first to set the context for my conversation with Dr. Spear. I'm really stoked to share this one with you. I also have another episode with Carmen Diardo from Tastop on value streams. This episode is a direct response to a listener request on the call-in line, which reminds me that there's also a podcast listener request line. So call plus one 833 and leave request in a voicemail. Preference goes to listener requests, so call in, tell me what you want, and you'll probably hear it on the show. There's also an episode with Brian Finster on development environments in microservice architectures. This seems to be a well that I can just keep going back to. Perhaps this is just one of my hobby horses, but hey, it's an important topic. Let's see, there's another episode with Marcus Sherp that I really need to get out of the backlog and into production. Uh, Marcus is a really smart guy and the brains behind the Ruby mutation project named Mutant. He's a wicked sharp and a principled software developer. We talk about a bunch of different things, so look forward to that one. And that's just what's already been recorded. There's even more already scheduled. So stay tuned for updates, and hopefully there will be some big names coming to small batches in 2021. So watch out. All right, so let's get on with the first episode of 2021. I hope you enjoyed all of the Saltside Chronicles. Those episodes were a challenge to produce, but I think it's a great story to revisit after all these years and completely relevant to what we talk about on the podcast. I've learned a lot since then, and of course, my perspective has changed completely since going through all that rewrite. Now, hopefully that story connected the relationship between velocity, quality, and tech debt for you. 
Plus, I just love Carmen Diardo's framing on revenue protection versus revenue generation. It just cuts straight to the core of the problem. Anyway, let's talk about the rewrite's goals for a second. One of the rewrite's goals was to create an architecture that would support SaltSide well into the future. That meant not painting ourselves into any architectural corners. In practice, that meant setting the boundaries between teams, applications, and infrastructure. With those boundaries in place, each part of the system could change independently, and that would provide the needed business agility to react to market conditions or grow or even shrink the team. Now, I saw this play out firsthand after SaltSite opened up their new development office in Bangalore. You know, the team grew and their product changed, but the architecture kept up. In fact, it actually accelerated some of the things we were able to do. So that was just really cool to see. But, you know, it was almost expected. Now, eventually, over time, a couple years, I left the company. That's where we pick up today's episode to see the long tail effects of the rewrite at SaltSide. Today, I'm speaking with Sebastian Dahlgren. Sebastian is the CTO at SaltSide and an open source contributor with broad experience from DevOps and engineering within e-commerce, classifieds, and recommendation engines. Sebastian, like myself, has a strong passion for Asia and technology in emerging markets. So I interviewed Sebastian during the tail end of the rewrite. He was sort of hired on to work directly with me, at least that was the idea initially. He joined shortly after we completed the rewrite and just before SaltSide opened the office in Bangalore, which coincidentally is a really interesting time in that company's history. But anyway, he quickly shifted into a manager and engineering leadership role and eventually went on to become the CTO at SaltSide. Sebastian and I worked closely together while we were both at SaltSide. He's continued to work there a couple years after I've left. So he's observed firsthand how the choices made during the rewrite have helped or hindered SaltSide today. Today, I give you a conversation five years in the making. Sebastian and I discuss the long-term impacts of the rewrite on SaltSide today. It's a fun look into validating some of the hypotheses that drove the rewrite. But more importantly, I think it closes the loop between the work everyone did in 2015 and SaltSide today. So enjoy a special bonus edition of the Saltside Chronicles with Sebastian Dahlgren. Sebastian, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I think that you and I are going to have one of the rarest and just the most entertaining and fun conversations I can think of, which is, you know, being able to talk about the long-term effects of architecture, like how it impacts teams, individual engineers, like what they can do in their day-to-day work, how it relates to the success of the business. And, you know, we're coming at this from the perspective of like, hey, I worked at SaltSide until like 2017, I think. And then you stayed on and eventually became the CTO. So this whole time that like I've been away, and after the rewrite, you were there, so you've seen it grow and change and what and how the business has changed, how the organizations change, and how the architecture put in place in the rewrite has worked or hasn't from actual firsthand accounts of what it's like to work in this company. So maybe let's start there. Like, how did SaltSide grow or not or change since that point? 
There are so many levels to that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the company has grown in the sense that we have a lot more users now. We have uh, still the three markets that we've been talking about previously on this show, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we're, we're still in Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and Ghana. And uh, I think one of the things that the rewrite was supposed to deliver on was the possibility to quickly move into another market. Oh, yeah, uh, for that sure. we haven't really done. I mean, we had a short venture in Nigeria, but um, that market is, is uh, closed down again. But the uh, the thing I suppose we will focus on is the engineering aspects of this. The architecture is overall still there. Uh, it's evolved quite a bit, uh, especially since we've seen new business needs and also more traffic, which has surfaced uh, a few problems with the, the architecture that we've had to uh, revisit, basically. Yeah. So let's just uh, let me ask you some simple questions then. So one of the goals of the architecture for the rewrite was to allow SaltSide to exist, like grow and scale, you know, five to 10 years in the future. Do you think that that, that architecture succeeded in that goal? Yeah, the the short answer is yes. And I mean, the proof is that we're still around, right? Yeah, and you had the first profitable year at some point, right? Exactly, exactly. And uh, we've uh, reached profitability a few times over. So um, oh, really? it certainly has delivered on, on that, right? And it has also delivered in the sense that it's been able to deliver or uh, scale for mm-hmm. more and more users but also scale in the sense that we can sort of effortlessly add more features. Mm. We can expand the architecture. Uh, So it's also future-friendly in that sense. Yeah, that's good news. So that's the technical side. And I think where we're picking up the story is in the SaltSide Chronicles, I go to SaltSide in Sweden after the rewrite. But there's another chapter of the story, which is, the company opened up an office in Bangalore in India and grew the engineering team quite a bit. And then eventually there was only the engineering team in uh, in India. And the way that we were organized during the rewrite is not the way that we were organized when, when I left. When I left, we were quasi-organized around like features or some sort of more product stuff as opposed to being just pure technical like back-end web or, or mobile. So I thought there was always a mismatch between the architecture we created in the rewrite because that mapped to the team structure that we had when we created the rewrite. And then the team structure changed after that. And we had this mismatch of who owns what services and the feature the product features don't map cleanly onto this architecture. So like, you know, we were able to, of course, grow. This is both you and I were working at SaltSide during this time when we're actively working on growing the engineering team in India you know, we're able to onboard new engineers, get them going, like launch new services, maintain new things. And I think one of the last things I remember was sort of like the introduction of a notification service or something like this, sort of like collapsing some of the the services that were already there. So how has the team structure changed on top of this software architecture? Are they kind of more in sync or where is the, the state of that at the moment? It's a fun question, actually. So We've been through so many iterations of uh, team structure and who owns what, and um, also how they respond to different needs in the organization. So we've had teams that work solely for a specific market, only on their features. 
Uh, we've had, uh, like you said, a back-and-only team and then uh, mobile teams. But we're, what we're at right now is similar to what you described, right? We have uh, what we call cross-functional teams, which mm-hmm. is teams where we have back-end engineers and mobile engineers and web engineers all together. And uh, the idea is obviously that they can deliver a feature independently and independently in the sense that they don't need really other teams to help shift this feature. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily map great to the uh, architecture, I guess, but it it works pretty well. I mean, we're a small team of uh, two engineering teams and a data team. So, um, you know, everyone sort of owns everything. So the backend engineers of the different teams, they work on features, but they also collaborate together in excellence groups, so like mm-hmm. a tribe or what you will write. Uh, and they sort of together collectively own the backend. Mm. Yeah. So that was sort of, that was one challenge that we had after we moved away from technical teams to some sort of product or cross-functional teams, which was, you know, we as backend engineers built all the services that composed the APIs. Like, you know, all of us were used to building applications, deploying applications, running them in production. I mean, this was sort of like our bread and butter. That's what we did. But when the organization moved to cross-functional teams, then we had this gap where you have supposedly like a team who can, you know, own one kind of whole vertical or some area, but they don't have the backend skills or the web skills or the mobile skills to kind of pull on all the different levers required in the different pieces of the architecture to actually deliver the value that their, you know, stated reason to exist is to do that, right? So is it like something like of maybe have you considered collapsing some of the services or like sort of changing some of the the underlying technical architecture to make it easier? To map on, or like, is that not really so much of a problem now because people have the skills required to kind of pull all the levers? Yeah, I'm leaning towards the latter. We are not looking to collapse any services, uh, quite the contrary, actually. One of the challenges we have with the architecture that was set during the rewrite is actually that what we have what is called the core service. And to mm-hmm. give some context, right, you can you can tell from the name that it's a rather important service in the architecture. And basically what it does is it owns so many of the key concepts and the key objects in the system. So it owns ads, which is obviously a super important object to us, right? And accounts, shops, which is essentially uh, websites for customers. And um, membership logic as to who who has to subscribe to a certain membership and so forth. And a lot of this is all compiled into that core service, which makes that service more and more difficult to work with. Mm-hmm. And what we're actually looking to do and have been looking to do for an embarrassingly long time is just break out some of these components into their own services mm-hmm. so that we more easily can maintain uh, dependencies change programming languages if we want to, and and so forth. Um, So we're not looking to collapse anything. And I don't really see a big problem here in terms of mapping the teams to the architecture. But certainly there is something to it, right? I mean, it, it would be great with someone, an appointed person, to talk to mm-hmm. when there is a problem with a certain service, right? Yeah. And that we lack 
And instead, the answer to those discussions is that we discuss them as a team, as a group. Yeah. Some people have a lot of ideas as to how a certain service should should be functioning. Um, it could be because they wrote it in the first place, or they have uh, been working on it recently, and therefore have more opinions as to what is good and bad and what needs to change from that service. Um, so it sort of works out, uh, but it, it probably won't scale in in the long run. I mean, if we were to double up or triple up on number of engineers, then we most likely mm. need to have some sort of ownership uh, yeah. designated. That's one of my favorite questions to ask. What I like to consider is what will happen in the system if we double the number of people or double the number of teams? Because there's technical abstractions that hold true like at a certain scale of like request per second, whatever, there's compute resources. But then there's the human aspect, right? And when we were doing the rewrite, this was something that, you know, Peter and I talked a lot. All like all of us actually, you know, Daniel, Vali, and and everyone, we talked a lot about what would happen if we had double or triple the engineers because it was all assumed that like we're doing this such that we never ever have to do anything like this again. Like nobody wants to do this, right? So if we're gonna do it, let's make sure that we really don't paint ourselves into a corner for anything that we can like maybe not say predict with certainty, but we can say with some degree of confidence could happen. So I'm curious, do you feel that the architecture painted the engineers or the business into any corners, or is it flexible enough that given some change in requirements or some change in, you know, whatever, that there are ways it can be adapted or evolved? Yeah, okay, so regarding your question about being painted into an architectural corner, right, I think there has been some areas where we've felt that, and... uh, but the, the overarching answer is the platform is flexible and future-friendly enough for us to add new things. Uh, but just to take an example of something that has not worked well is that we use Thrift, as you mentioned in one yes, of the previous yes. episodes. I'm really curious what you have to say about this, so please continue. Yeah, yeah so I have a lot to say about Thrift. And um, maybe let me start off with a problem. So one of the problems we've found is not with Thrift itself, but the way we have used Thrift, which is that we serialize some objects and store them to the database. As serialized as Thrift structures and stored in the database. Exactly, exactly. So we serialize that object and save it into MongoDB. Yeah. And now we're looking to shift over from Thrift to Protobuf. Mm-hmm. And uh, then that poses sort of an issue it's rather difficult to work with and migrate away from uh, mm-hmm. having these objects in, in serialized form in the database. Maybe stepping back a bit and talking about Thrift, I mean, one of the really, really cool things and things that I really have appreciated over a long period of time at SaltSide is Thrift. So mm-hmm. Thrift to me has been great so that, you know, I'm working with uh, multiple services at the same time and we are together, right? And Mm -hmm. us always understanding what an ad is or what an account is in these various services is super helpful because you have the same objects to relate to even though you're working on multiple services. Right. So an ad is an ad. Everyone everyone knows what it is. We have a clear definition as to what it is. And the, the other very important part here is that we're not super good at documentation. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the thrift files, 
we are very rigid about documenting the object and the properties of the object. Mm -hmm. And since you also define services in Thrift and the RPCs, we do the same there. We define the intent of the service and the intent of the different RPCs. And that is powerful documentation because everyone has the same idea of what is what is what and why it's there. And you also obviously have that in Git so you can see some history as to what has changed and, and why. And we have been doing a lot of good things with Thrift, but we've also done a number of mistakes. Mm-hmm. And um, one of those mistakes is that Thrift supports defining properties as required or optional. Mm-hmm. Right? And when you define something as required, it's required forever. So if you want to change the type of something or deprecate it, then you're boxed in, right? You can't really do that in a good way. Um, So what we've turned to do is to always keep everything or almost everything as optional. Mm -hmm. Because that helps in our architecture quite a lot. What that does, though, is that it moves away from that great feature of Thrift where you get validation. I mean, now we need to validate the properties in each service to make sure that the properties we want are actually there. That was previously something which was built into Thrift. But if you look at the evolution of uh, Protobuf, they moved from a concept where they had required and optional fields to a version of Protobuf where you can't even define required fields. And I think that, to me, says something of of what what the problem with required fields can do in the in the ecosystem as a whole, I guess. Yeah. So for the listener, I want to give some more context to like Thrift specifically when we're talking about it at Saltside. So I spoke a little bit about this in the Saltside Chronicles, but the reason why we chose Thrift was that we didn't want to deal with implementing clients, implementing servers. All we wanted was you know, a statically defined interface, request and response structure with some sort of rudimentary validation baked in as to like required fields types such that you could not send junk across the wire one way or the other. And what we also did with Thrift is something, actually, I'm really curious what you think about this after all these years, Sebastian, but because sort of the nature of our system with the core service and the Thrift stuff was really a common interface across all the services. So because we had these core concepts like add and user, we did not want every single service defining its own version of what those contexts actually were. So we decided to say there's a common definition of, of add and account and these you know core concepts and all the different bits of the services will interchange these concepts and they can decorate them in their own domain context as to like what matters. So we have, like, we called the repository platform thrift files, which contained all the thrift IDLs for all the structs, all the services, all there. Anybody, any service who was going to consume any of those repositories could just clone that repo, like use the thrift stuff, and it was it was all there. So, like, I think what Sebastian is talking about here with the required fields is, yeah, we we made some stuff required. We because what was required at one point in time, but you know, as requirements change, and then if you're unfamiliar with Thrift, I mean, it's like a database schema in the sense that you declare statically defined things and they have to be there or or not. So there is, like, if you consider what you have to do to evolve a database schema over time, you have to kind of think about some of this 
thrift stuff in the same way. And one of the other things that we did there, which was, I always thought it was going to be a trade-off, which is like, I didn't want to spend time doing a bunch of marshalling and remarshalling stuff between different data formats, especially if a service was only really speaking thrift, but it needed to store some stuff. So what we did was we'll just dump the serialized thrift struct in a database somewhere, be able to serialize stuff from the database, deserialize it in the application and get the entity back. And then we can do some stuff with it. That was sort of a, since we already have this interface for these structs and all this stuff, like why are we going to write another layer on storage? Like we already have this. So that's some of the, um, uh, the context and background for this for a listener. So uh, yeah, sorry. I just wanted to make sure listeners got that, but where were we, I think you wanted to talk a bit more about, uh, about thrift, right? Yeah, I mean, so Thrift has been, as I said, right, uh, super helpful for us uh, in documenting and getting every engineer on the same page when when we talk between different services. And uh, one of the problems uh, that we have is that Thrift has sort of a couple of components to it. So it has that serialization and deserialization that was we spoke about, so a data format, mm-hmm. uh, but it also has a transport layer, so you can send the thrift files between the different services, the clients and the server that Adam spoke about uh, over different types of transport mechanisms. So be it HTTP or TCP and and so forth. And um, that's an area where we have uh, ran into a number of problems. So um, I think in in one of the previous episodes, you spoke about our search service, Mm -hmm. which is essentially a uh, Elasticsearch front-end service, uh, which is constructing queries that we execute towards Elasticsearch. And that service is taking uh, thrift calls or or has thrift RPCs. Mm -hmm. But we've had so many different types of transport-related problems in that service, and we've invested enormous amounts of engineering into understanding what those issues were about and why they occurred. And I'm not just talking about you know investing time in networking and so forth. We've also been diving deep into the actual thrift source code. <laughs> yeah, the code. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the day, I mean, we we didn't understand it. We did a number of fixes. It improved a few things, but never really solved the issue. And what we tried then was to switch the transport method from one to the other. So we switched over to the HTTP version of uh, transport for for Thrift. That too had the same issue um, or, or came with a different set of issues, I guess. So what we've done now actually, and, and this works a lot better, is that we use Thrift for serialization and the, the protocol, mm-hmm. uh, but we use a very standard Go HTTP server and an HTTP client that we use to transport this serialized data. And then we've moved away from most of these different types of timeout issues that we've solved previously with uh, with transport. Wow. All right, let's take a quick break from today's episode so I can tell you about my other software delivery resources. First, I'm opening up my own software delivery dojo. My dojo is a four-week program designed to level up your skills building, deploying, and operating production systems. Each week, participants will go through theoretical and practical exercises led by me designed to hone the skills needed for continuous delivery. I'm offering this dojo at an amazingly affordable price to small batches listeners. 
Spots are limited though, so apply now at softwaredeliverydojo.com. Well, if you want something free instead, I've got you there too. Find links to my free email courses and ebooks on any show notes page. My courses and ebooks cover topics in much more depth than I can cover on the podcast. They're great on their own or even as a useful complement to topics covered on the show. Find all of my free resources at smallbatches.fm. All right, let's get back into the episode. I'm really happy you mentioned Go because now we can pull on one of the other threads, which is really important in the rewrite, which was at the time, you know, we were before the rewrite, SaltSide was Ruby. It was Ruby on Rails for pretty much most of their applications and like people were hired, expected to have Ruby experience, and they built applications in Ruby. And this was way before there was any stuff like React or single page apps or any of this stuff. This was, you know, server side rendered HTML with jQuery or maybe some, you know, some stuff peppered in like that. Really different than the way apps are built now. But when we were doing the rewrite, we had new people who had come into the team. They had, you know, experience with different languages. It was no longer just Ruby. We were starting to do some more stuff in Node. And, uh, you know, one person really wanted to use D initially. But D didn't support uh, Thrift. And when this guy told me about D, I was like, wow, that's a really cool language. I hope we can use it. But it wasn't supported by Thrift. And he settled on Go. And when we're deciding to use Thrift, deciding to use Docker, all this stuff, we wanted to make it so that a developer could use the whatever language they thought was the best tool for the job, not eliminate that, like not painting us into a corner. And one of the things that probably happened uh, maybe over the past couple of the like the last year or like year and a half I was at Saltside was uh, an introduction and transition into much more Go at Saltside, which I think is a good thing because you know people use it, they like it. It obviously is delivering value for the business. And now, given the sort of the different layers in the architecture, where hey, you can use Thrift, it speaks language X. You can use Go because it solves some scaling problem or whatever to be able to do that is great. So like I think we can say that architecture has delivered on that language flexibility. And I'm curious, you know, like are there more languages in production now or like what is sort of the proliferation of languages look like? Yeah. So we are currently using Thrift to generate uh, Node source code, mm-hmm. Go, Ruby, Java, and Python. Mm-hmm. And uh, Java and Python is mainly used in our data platform. Uh, so for the, the regular production system, it's mostly Go and Ruby still. We have a node for uh, a small part of the system only. Uh, but Go and Ruby has been a very long story for us. And, and over time, the trend has been that we're doing more and more things in, in Go. The new services we bring up, they are almost exclusively written in Go. And I think the, the reason for that is probably a, a number of different answers put together, I guess. But one reason is that we've had a number of performance issues with, with Ruby, mm-hmm. and um, those have been easier to solve with Go and, and multi-threading and so forth in, in Go. Uh, but I think the probably the biggest answer is that most of the engineers enjoy writing Go code. Mm-hmm. And when they bring up a new service, they can choose 
the language that fits that service and fits the skills that we have and, and so forth, right? So um, then Go is the natural choice for us. And it's, um, yeah, it's really the, the language right now. It's on site. However, as I mentioned previously, we have that core service, which is still a super important service in our system. And that's written in, in Ruby. A lot of it actually written by yours truly, right? Yeah. And still, you can still. I'm curious what the Git history, like the commit stats for that repository, looks like now. You know, how much is it still Adam and Terrier at the top? It's actually surprisingly much, and I think these names from the rewrites and actually commits from the rewrite is still very much a living component in most services. And I mean, especially when you look at configuration and um, mm. stuff like that, right? Oh, then, yeah. then you can certainly find it. And uh, in, in um, some of these parts where we have um, rather static code written once, uh, yeah. there is certainly alive. But also, I mean, it's not only about what lines of code is there. I mean, the whole and more important thing is that the concept is still there, the exact same way of working with the application and the abstraction layers and so forth, they are generally there. They have changed maybe in nature and expanded, mm -hmm. but, but mostly they're there. Yeah, the, so I guess you're speaking to the sort of hexagonal architecture approach of like, hey, there's this boundary in the place in the code, there's clients and servers, separate parts of that, and this end of the boundary can vary, there's tests across the boundary, you know, these sort of what I consider, you know, basic software architecture principles really. And of course, all the tests to go with it, right? Like always tests, hopefully that's still there. Yeah, and actually that's one of the things I wanted to bring up when we spoke about doing this uh, episode, right? Because tests is one of the success factors, probably mm -hmm. maybe even the, the most important one to us today because what all the tests do is, I guess, two things. One is that it increases the quality of our engineering because you can really not submit anything to our code base, which is not tested. Mm -hmm. And that drives up the, the quality in general of the code because people are more wary about why they implement something and how they do it and so forth because they need to write a test that makes sense. The other thing, and this is something I felt when I joined SolSide initially because I had a background from companies where tests were partly there, partly not there, and you were in a sort of unknown state as to if I make this change, will it break something? And do yeah. I really know in my head what I need to test to ship this? And I think this is the most important part to me because when we make a change, we almost know that this will or will not break something else. Yeah. And I think that's a great enabler for engineers because if you're a new engineer to this code base, which is a large code base, right? Then you can, with some confidence, make a change and be ready to ship it without having to understand all the different business cases and so forth. And it's important in an organization like, like SoulSide where the business cases are very, um, it's a large set of rules, right? Oh, yeah. Large set of business rules, but also those rules vary by market. So what is mm -hmm. true for one market may not be true for the other market. So you can't really expect any engineer to have all of that in their head. Nor, I mean, the, the same is true for quality engineering, engineers and so forth. We don't right. need to rely for, on these. For anybody, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so... Um, 
testing is important. And this is something I've said on the on the podcast so many times is that if you do not have sufficiently high automated test coverage, you're done. You're toast. You will not be able to do anything. And when we started the rewrite, there wasn't really much test coverage for the existing system, right? So I had already been plenty had plenty of experience working in TDD. So like that was my natural way of working for all the new code that we were writing during this thing or during the rewrite. And I made sure like this was the one thing that I was not going to allow any compromise on, which was if you're writing code, you're good. You should do TDD if you're if you can't or you're not familiar with that. OK, well, let's help you learn. But you're going to write tests. You're not going to ship any code into this thing that is not covered by tests. And I always come back to my experience at SaltSide going from there's no test to there is test such that the kind of ideal I have in my mind is that you can check out the code, run the test. If the test passed, you should be able to confidently push that code into production. If you don't have that assumption met, you need to do everything you can to get to that base level because that's the that's the floor. That's not the ceiling, right? <laughs> so what we put in place in the rewrite was that level of test coverage and automation of the whole pipeline for every single service that was deployed to production, right? And now like, having seen things be the other way, I can tell you, I want to go back to how it was at SaltSide. <laughs> and I don't really say that very often. You know, it's not a knock, but like that's just how important that these, like what testing gives you. And I think you and I have seen it firsthand too when new people join the team, they've never made a commit to a repository. They don't know what it's doing. And they're given some, you know, small change and they want to know if it works or not. How do they do that? They have the test. They learn. And it's the best. It's just the best mechanism for this. You know, it's so like if you don't have it, that's where you, you know, where you got to start. I don't want to get like going on testing again because, I, I mean, I'm almost like religious about it and how important it is. But I'm because you mentioned config and there's like maybe two two things I want to talk to you about remaining so we don't just talk about this forever. But one is the config, right? There's a whole episode in the SaltSide Chronicles about config and how problematic it is and what does it mean for SaltSide because SaltSide is just a huge ball of parameterized logic around config. Effectively, that's how it was when I was there. And uh, the the way we solved this problem in the core service was we wrote this like little DSL in Ruby to create these structs and that sort of like represented this whole thing. We have it codified and there was like RPCs and core service to load config and get all that and like the web app use it and the Android app use it, et cetera. So that's kind of how we had the whole solve the config problem. So how has the config problem, is it still there? Like, is that uh, like still working okay? Like what, what's the state of the, the config? It's a complex question. I think the config, first and foremost, it's still there, uh, pretty mm-hmm. much in the shape it was previously. Obviously, we've uh, expanded the concepts more and have uh, different types and so forth. Uh, yeah. We even have nested types now. So um, this is one of these big steps forward uh, in terms of logic, right? Because previously we had rather basic fields, if you will. I mean, they could be complex in the sense that they could have maybe a value and a measurement and and, yeah. and so forth, right? Uh, but but now we have, for example, fields where you select maybe a, a brand of a car, and based mm-hmm. on that, you get a subset of models that match that brand. Ah, uh, this problem. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's a Pandora's box of uh, problems, right? Yeah, because now one, one depends the things, on the other. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that makes for very, very much more complex implementation, both on the client side and on the server side. The config itself is rather straightforward, though, because it's just, you know, a tree. Mm -hmm. However, this is important because we see now as a trend in the market that more and more things are to go into the config. So let's just say that we have uh, mobile phones, we have mobile brands, and we have models, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a set of data which is changing somewhat frequently. Yeah. And when you expand that to more and more verticals, what it does is that the config pulls engineering back into that critical path, right? Yeah. And that is something we haven't solved yet. I mean, this is, problem is just now dawning on us, I guess. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's more and more uh, becoming an issue. And um, we also have more and more complex pricing structures so based on where you are and what you're paying for and, and so forth and what the price of the item is and so forth, right? We are also having a very complex system for calculating prices. And these things put together um, makes config difficult to manage. Uh, but more importantly, I guess, it's taking away a lot of the engineering time. So that is a problem we are yet to solve, I guess, with yeah. um, getting it closer to the business one way or the other. That is a really hard problem. I I guess. I don't know if that was sort of the initial uh, this like assumption about how the config would be managed when they initially put the first version of this whole thing with storing the config in a database. I, I, I think that they had built it that way so that they could connect some like admin UI for it and allow people to change it. But the problem with that approach is that it's static information that has logic around it that you can't easily just manipulate in a database and expect every single application to just update and work. So like that is one of the real just tensions and just a trade-off of building a product like this. I don't see there's really a way around it that doesn't involve orders of magnitude of effort such that somebody can go into a UI and add another brand to a phone. Like versus having as unfortunate as it is having an engineer on the critical path to like add some, you know, entry to some JSON file, you know, you know, add an array or whatever. But there's the kind of the dynamic versus static tension in the config all the time. And that's 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 always been there. I don't think that's ever gonna go away. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so either. It's just that we need to find a new balance, I think. Mm, yeah. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is something that we talked a little bit about in the, the pre-recording, which was the ghosts of the rewrite. You know, that now it's the rewrite completed in 2015. It's 2021 now as we record this. It's been, you know, four and a half, five years since then. You know, you mentioned that you look at the source code, you'll see commits from, you know, X number of years ago mentioning, like, from the rewrite, old code, almost like, in software terms, archaic, actually. And, of course, there's the technical structure that was created in the rewrite. There's all of the product stuff. I mean, unless we forget that there was a new admin app, a web app, a mobile, an Android app, an I, you know, iPhone app, all of this whole, you know, the product that's in place right now is like came out of that. And, of course, then there's the stories that are told in the organization about the rewrite and the people who... I think I don't even from the engineering side. I'm not even sure who's there, who's experienced that. But you know, high level management, the same the same CEO is there. Maybe some of those people. But 
you know, you came in just after we had finished it. So how do you see the, how does the, the story and sort of the rewrite, if at all, like manifest itself in Salt side today, not on like the technical side, but just sort of in the, the culture and the storytelling? Yeah, so I, I don't think it is um, manifested a lot on the engineering side, right? Like you mentioned, uh, I joined Raft right after the rewrite and everyone who's on the technical team joined after that. So no one is currently working, we're actually working during the rewrite. However, to us, it's in ways sort of a living ghost. We can, we sometimes talk about the rewrite and why we did it and what the trade-offs were and so forth and, and why we ended up in that place to begin with, because mm-hmm. this has been a very living story for a long time within the company. Uh, but on the business side, you're right. Most of the management is still the same. And uh, they obviously have a very fresh memory of the rewrite. Mm-hmm. And I think that serves us well right now, which is that management and, and sort of all of the business and engineering has a pretty well-balanced view of revenue generation versus revenue protection. Mm-hmm. So we're focusing quite heavily on the protection side of things. And um, that's never really a big debate in the company any longer. We don't need mm. to fight to do the technical things. Um, and I think maybe just to illustrate that, over the last year, when COVID-19 hit the world, we restructured our team a bit. We focused a lot more on features. One of the things that we wanted to get out of the door was something we call essentials, which is uh, essentially groceries online so that you yeah. can deliver groceries to your, to local communities with the riders we had in, in the different markets. And um, all of 2020, or a lot of it, at least more than usual, has been focused on revenue generation However, now that we're into 2021 and have a hopefully much brighter future ahead of us, uh, we are refocusing our engineering efforts so that we are doing revenue protection at around, we've said between 20 and 40% of the time should go directly to revenue protection, mm-hmm. whereas that previously was at around 15%. Yeah, and, and that's done without major debate because people understand the value of long-term functional architecture and something that can actually scale in terms of not not only in terms of number of users, that too, of course, but can scale in terms of adding new features to it. Because that's something we've done rather effortlessly because the architecture has been future-friendly. Yeah, well, I mean, it speaks to one of the big themes on this podcast, which is the reason why we do this technical work is to deliver business agility, right? The world went through a shock when COVID-19 happened and basically changed the economic rules for many companies. And many companies needed to change their business model to suit the realities of the world. And the organizations that could adapt faster would be more successful in that environment. And if I think back to what happened with Salside when they wanted to introduce a mobile app, which took you know effectively a year, if they were in that position now and had to adapt to COVID-19, they would not have been able to do that, right? So we're speaking 
really just about ability to succeed as a business and adapt and succeed in the market, which is something that we don't really talk about so much as, you know, I think when we're like writing code on the keyboard and we're think, doing that, we're not really thinking like all the way up the stack. But the point of this podcast and the point of like this architecture and even the point of the rewrite itself was to unlock that business agility that was not there before. You know, like we have to really look through that lens for some of these big architecture and technical choices that we put in place. Like we're not just doing this purely for fun or because we think that, you know, thrift is the be all and end all of this stuff. Like, no, these are specific reasons why we're choosing to do all these things. And I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, uh, but I really want to sort of just give my take on this after like, having this conversation with you and please like time and after, which is, I think that overall as painful and as difficult as the rewrite process was. And I, I never, I never ever want to have to go through that again or do that kind of project again. But if Saltside did not undergo that project, they would not have a business right now. And that to me is speaks to the ultimate success of the rewrite and that Saltside can continue to exist, grow and thrive and ultimately become, as you say, a profitable company year after year, not a one-time thing. I think, does that jive with you? Does that sort of mirror your own thoughts on it? Yeah, it does. And I think what is also important here is that now when we see areas of the architecture failing, uh, they are usually abstracted away. So one, one example here was our, we have uh, done a rewrite of the search service, mm-hmm. migrated over from Ruby to Go and uh, changed a lot of logic and so forth. And that could be done because the search service was its own component. We had the RPCs. We could just do that rewrite rather independently without having to impact the rest of the platform. So now we're in a position where we find issues and we do that, of course, right? Uh, but when we do so, we can take smaller steps towards a better architecture. And that is the, the key takeaway to me. Yeah, being able to do things in small batches really makes a difference, right? It's like being able to actually move incrementally is the only way to make consistent and sustained progress. Like, I had a really different perspective on the rewrite when I was doing it as compared to now, because I can't imagine how frustrating it was for the CEO and some of these board people or you know, these higher level management who, honest to God, they had put a complete pause on any new business development because there was no resources for it. They had to put everything into this for like nine months, basically. And you try to pitch that idea to somebody in management and they're like, uh, no, it can't happen. But it was never intended to be that, but it grew into that, of course. But I don't know how he feels about it now, but it's curious to see like you took this thing, you chose to do the rewrite. It's certainly not a short-term investment. This is a big commitment for a long-term like the long-term thing, you know, like if your outlook is five, 10 years, then it makes sense. If your outlook is a year, do not do that at all. And I, I hope, and I, I just really curious what the board and the CEO kind of think about it after all this time. I don't know. I don't really kind of expect, I don't expect you to comment on that. It's just really changed my thinking about, does it make sense to ever do anything like this? You know, and I'm not sure if they had that timeline in mind, but if they did, it definitely paid off. Like it's a long bet. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what their thoughts were then and, and so forth. But I mean, one of the things that strikes me over and over with the small side is that we have long-term goals. 
So we go into these underserved markets with the long-term perspective. We don't expect to make profit in a year, not in two years, but rather in five or so years. And with that perspective, I guess the rewrite also made sense, mm. although it could have been done differently for in, in so many ways, right? But um, in the grand scheme of things, and now looking back, I think it made sense. Yeah, I I think so too. It's uh, by far the most interesting story of uh, my career and why I wanted to share it on the podcast and you know really talk to you about it, get the other half of the story, maybe the third chapter, not to tell the middle one, which is what happened in Bangalore, but maybe that will be another series of the Saltside Chronicles. Well, Sebastian, it has been a pleasure talking to you. It's really also just great to catch up with you. You know, for the listeners, uh, you can't see us right now, but you know, I've been smiling and having a great time just talking to Sebastian. And this is, it was um, a, one of the great pleasures of my career to be able to work and pair with Sebastian on stuff. I hope to one day be able to maybe work with you again. I don't know if that will happen, but it would be a lot of fun. So thank you so much uh, for coming on the show, uh, Sebastian. Is there anything you'd like to leave listeners with before we go? No, not really. Uh, but thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure, Adam. Well, thank you so much, Sebastian. Let's keep in touch. And uh, maybe we'll check in again in a few years when we have like Saltside in 2025. Let's see. Yeah, let's do that. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. You've just finished another episode of Small Batches, a podcast on building a high-performance software delivery organization. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, go to smallbatches.fm. I hope to have you back again for the next episode. So until then, happy shipping. Like the sound of Small Batches? This episode was produced by Podsworth Media. That's podsworth.com.